Hello everyone and welcome to the J-Free 906 Podcast. I am your host Jeff Freeman and this particular show is from the Lost Relics of the Knights Templar returning guest Carl Cookson and Hamilton White. This show was recorded on December 4th, 2021. Sit back and enjoy this time with Carl and Hamilton. Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Curse of Oak Island Beyond live stream. I am your host, Jeff Freeman, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Gretchen Cornwall, and we are very excited to have, coming back to the show, Hamilton White and Carl Cookson from Lost Relics of the Knights Templar. Welcome, everyone. Glad to have you guys back. I, I've been looking forward to this for a long time. After watching season two of your show on the Discovery Channel, which I think was fascinating, again, looking at the horde of all the stuff you guys have. I know at the very first part of the show, we started off with going to Venice, like the helmet that we're going to talk about here in just a minute had to do with the lion and St. Mark. But I'm going to I'm going to let Gretchen kind of take over here because she has so much knowledge on this. Gretchen, go ahead with what you've got there. Oh, well, thank you for including me today. And I'm I'm just so pleased to you be here with choice. you. <laughs> pleased to be with you, Hamilton and Carl. You know, you two are just amazing with what you have achieved. And it is an achievement. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you've done for, for me and anyone who follows the Templars is that you've given a broader picture of their place in the scheme of things, yes. uh, along, well, along with crusader orders mm-hmm. in themselves. But rather than just a couple of guys running around in a field uh, or maybe carrying the ark or on horseback or whatever, you've actually placed the order in the context of the the history. Now, granted, the whole issue with the the city-state of Venice, the badge of St. Mark's is fascinating. And, and, and of course, you know, the uh, winged lion is uh, an emblem, a a beastie, if you will, of one of the four Gospels and represents St. Mark. But if you could help us understand the context of the city state of Venice. The first thing you have to understand about why Venice adopted that symbol, they they were a maritime superpower, um, but they were not quite as high as they wanted to go, and they needed... um, at that time in Italy and all across Europe, you know, there was relics coming back. And if you had an important relic, it was like a brand leader. So, you know, if you didn't have a relic, he wasn't on the map. And they had an audacious plan to steal the body or the relics of, of, of uh, St. Mark. Um, and he knew that if they'd done that, that would ge- generate power and wealth even greater than they already had. So they set about a scheme to go over to Alexandria um, and steal his body. And, and they managed to steal it, but how they got it out of that area was quite fascinating because they put it in a wicker basket and covered the body in cabbages and pork. And obviously, obviously because of um, it being an Islamic state at the time, or, you know, the, the Islamic people being in charge of the customs and the, the whole area, they they quickly opened the lid and, oh, you know, they didn't want to explore any further, so they let it go and subsequently the body arrived in Venice and they built the church around in St. Mark's Square and, and at that point then they had complete legitimacy and authority to use the Lion of St. Mark's as, 
the emblem on their blazer. It's all over the place when you go there. I know. Oh, it's so striking. The mosaic uh, relief on the Cathedral of St. Mark's was so beautiful and human looking. Uh, and the you know the one the one frieze where the the uh, the border the guards the city gate guards are like doing this was yeah. was incredible was <laughs> and the joy and the elation of the the leaders of the city <laughs> when the, when Saint Mark came home basically I uh, I was amazed at how how there was actually an election to bring to power, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the doge, uh, uh, was an elected official and he was, he was a badass. excuse my, my, <laughs> no, <you're right. laughs> but he was, I mean, that man had machismo and, and guts and, and no doubt charisma as well, but he, he reforged that city based on, on the, uh, on St. Mark it became a, a, a fleet, you know, he developed a fleet to engage with the Holy Land. What I found so compelling was that the helmet is a physical object we can see and touch today with the badge of St. Mark's on it. The sword, likewise, that just brings it home. I can feel it. Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, it's great. Love it. Wow, that's it right there. There we go. Oh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how well you can see the if we get that on the on the right camera angle. Oh, there it is, right there. Not, that is is that is that showing properly? Yeah, it is. Right oh, that's there. It. Yep, that's perfect. got it, hasn't it? That's all. You awesome. know, it's faded, but the thing's the thick end of a thousand years old. It's going to be a little bit worn, but yeah, I mean, it's very clearly the line of Venice, standing sort of partly on land, partly on water. Man. Um, yeah, it's a cracking thing. Really good thing. Yep. That is fascinating, and you know, that's something that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> Is that each of the apostles <laughs> had a, a symbol of a, 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 a an animal of some sort, right? Is that correct? Yes, the four the four gospels. Each one is associated with supernatural spiritual being. One being uh, Saint Luke is the bull, mm -hmm. and uh, there is a a a human or a, an angel. There is the winged lion. My intellect is is uh, fading on the fourth, <laughs> yeah. the fourth. Forgive Just, me, uh, oh, but yeah, yeah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The eagle. That's it. The eagle. Uh, each one has a uh, meaningful emblem. All over Europe, you know, they were they were they were picking up relics and and adopting that 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 apostle for their symbolism, and it was. Again, you know, it, it, I know it sounds crude, but it's it's down to business again because the power that a place had then to grow and expand its influence and prestige because of that was, you, you couldn't calculate it. I mean, Venice was unique, though, because their, their, their competition was um, Genoa and what Venice was really masterful at was their ability to have diplomats and ambassadors all across Europe and the northern northern coast of Africa. Mm -hmm. And effectively, they were intelligence gatherers. So they knew all about the trade that was happening uh, and, and where, 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 you know, what was desirable. And it was actually the, the Crusaders had planned this crusade to go to um, 
you know, go back to the Holy Land in Constantinople. But the, when they got to Venice, they'd spe- Venice had spent 18 months and the whole town, the whole city had actually been building ships. It was a, an enterprise. You know, the women were involved, children, and then making sails, casting anchors and guns. But the problem was when they got there, um, a lot of the crusaders didn't turn up, so they were short of men and short of money to pay the the bill. I think it was something like 80,000 marks of silver. And I think they only had about 30,000. The Doge of Venice capitalised upon the idea that he could actually recapture um, Zada um, and at the same time, you know, by giving them the right to use these boats and and, and then further he thought the biggest prize was Constantinople yeah, and that's what all the controversy occurred. I, I was actually very moved, uh, Carl, uh, that uh, you were able to find that broken corner piece of the of the pillar that, that was actually taken out of Constantinople and you both were seen in the uh, in the that massive racetrack, the remains of that massive racetrack in Constantinople, but it was looted by by the Doge, wasn't it? Well, actually, the, the Hippodrome, uh, Sultan Mehmed, I think they call it, don't they, Hamilton? Something so, like that, yeah. That, that wasn't where that wasn't where we found those uh, remnants of the pillars. Oh, that's because right. You've got in Saint Mark's Square on the side of the cathedral. There's two pillars. And if you look at them, they, 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 you know, they've got, they depict grapevines and um, fig trees and oh, he froze fruits and grapes. And, and then you've got an egg and dart. And above it, they've got a very unusual design, which I've never seen. It's like a, a pyramid that links up to another pyramid. And in each pyramid, there's a, a doorway. And I, I, I found that fascinating. We were talking about it, wasn't we, Hamilton, when we were actually in, yeah, in Venice. And we looked around, and the, the pillar on the right was complete all the way around. But the pillar on the left, when we went round to the back of it, three-quarters of the panel was broken off. Wow. So what, what's not known is whether the pillars had probably fell when the Venetians decided to take them. Yeah. Or whether they were in situ, you know, upright, and and they got broken and damaged when they came down. But we we didn't know. We went part of the film was to go back to the original church in in Constantinople or Istanbul, as we call it today. And when we got there, really, there's just um, nothing was there really. I mean, no, on the foundations, yeah. There's just foundations, isn't there, Hamilton? Yeah, I mean, on ground level, there's practically nothing. I mean, there's a few column bases, but, I mean, nothing. I mean, you would just walk past it. But, I mean, you you went in. There was like a sort of underground storage area that certainly isn't medieval. It's probably a couple of hundred years old. But when you go in it, it's just completely full of rubble and pottery fragments. And it just looked like somebody swept up the whole site and just thrown it into a great big heap. And, I mean, you were nosing through it, weren't you, more than I was? I think we were under a bit, bit, bit of pressure from the um, camera director because we, we needed something a bit more, uh, a little bit more dynamic on the site. And we was a bit 
deflated when we got there. We, you know, we were, actually Hamilton. You wasn't surprised, was you? Well, we no. I mean, it was something that was demolished a thousand years ago in the middle of town, and it's been picked over by every local since the day they knocked it down. I mean, it, it's like just walking through a park, really. I mean, there's literally yeah. nothing, is there? Well, actually, when we got there, it was, it was a group of um, Syrian migrants that were That's right, yeah. wow. around there, and they were using that. The little storeroom was actually formerly uh, an Islamic crypt because there's like on each each section is three three slate beds or stone beds where they drop the body in cloth and lay them on. That's how they did it. And inside there, obviously, it's no longer a crypt, but yeah. We saw these um, remnants of egg and door patterns and sausage and pea designs, all, yeah. all you know, Greek and neoclassical elements of, of, of architecture. But then on the floor, I noticed um, these large sections. And as I spotted, it was the pyramid with the, the doorway in. And then I called Hamilton in and we, we looked, and it was absolutely, you know, unequivocally the missing uh, right. thing. Certainly the same thing, isn't it? Fantastic. Yeah. A, a real discovery captured on film yeah. to complete that image for us of uh, the trail from Constantinople, Istanbul, all the way back to to Venice. And uh, the uh, the transport of those objects, obviously, were, was quite difficult. Yeah, it was definitely, you know, quite logistic, but it's part of the plunder and pillage of war, you know, that, yes. that in this instance, you know, you're not just talking about gold and easy, easily portable symbols of wealth, but the, the, the actual obelisk that's lo located in Constantinople in the uh, former Hippodrome, that's an Egyptian one. So that had come from Egypt to Constantinople, uh, and now has ended up, actually one that ended up in St. Mark's Square. There's a number, I think we've got one in London as well, haven't we, Hamilton? Yes. It's funny, you know. something bad enough, you find a way of shifting it, don't you, if you want it? I mean... <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, all the things that you've found and had, uh, uh, yeah, if you want something bad enough, you're going to find a way to get it shipped to you. <laughs> or if you keep coughing over you, it'll clear in a minute. No, that's okay. We yeah. uh, we understand you're a little under the weather. We, uh, oh. we uh, just gracious that you're here anyway and we appreciate that very much um, one thing i wanted to note too was that it was noted that and grunchen had brought this up that the doge was very uh bold and i know that when they were going into was it constantinople it wasn't it uh, talked about that he was standing on the prow of the ship or the boat going in i mean he was ready to go and he was blind wasn't he yeah he was blind <laughs> I think he was 80. He was in his, in his 90s, I think. Was he like 96 or 97, something like that, was it? Yeah. I mean, you know, but the stakes were high, you know, and it, for those people, they're not just looking. He was already, obviously, a powerful, wealthy man, but the next the next commodity that them guys want is immortality uh, in, in name. So, you know, by, by being able to bring back all these riches to venice um he's got that immortality and that's you know that's that's what drives these kind of people i think well he yeah. he never actually went back to venice did he because he no. died in constantinople oh, the following oh, wow. year or something oh wow because we we were supposed to be able to go and see his gravestone which was inside hagia sophia 
But then, yes, you can see it. No, you can't. Yes, you can. No, you can't. Get out. And in the end, they wouldn't let us show it for some reason. We don't know why. But his gravestone is still set in the floor somewhere in Hagia Sophia. Wow. Oh, wow. Which I think, if I'm not mistaken, he's the only Christian buried there, I believe, isn't he? From what we were told. I mean, we, we did actually go in there, Hagia Sophia, which oh, was fantastic. incredible because we we were the only ones in there. And I don't think as many people get the chance to be in, underneath those giant domes with nobody about. Um, and it, it is just a remarkable building. I mean, it's it's unsupported internally. There's no columns. It's, it just relies on the domes and the incredible yeah. mathematics that the architects have. Put together, incredible space, yeah. and that's you know that's um, Romanesque architecture, which generally isn't very light inside. It was only when the temples, you know, brought Shaw Cathedral into being, things such as flying buttresses, that we were able to put big, massive windows in into very thin structures, and all of a sudden, cathedrals inside were very uplifting because of the sheer amount of light that came through the stained glass panels and the roses at the end. Um, so they were breakthrough designs in architecture, but nevertheless, the uh, Hagia Sophia as a Romanesque building is mind-blowing. Yeah. They closed it for 15 minutes just for us. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was fantastic. I mean, we just had the whole place to ourselves to wander about and, I don't know. We just sort of sat there scratching our head, really, didn't it? It was it was quite surreal, but fantastic building. Yeah, real privilege. Yeah, wonderful building. Yeah. And you know, you're, you're you're standing exactly where all of the crusaders, exactly. or all the oh, main yeah. crusader leaders themselves, where they stood eight nine hundred years ago. I mean, it's quite remarkable. And that's the thing about having you guys, I mean, not only the show, but having you on here today is that we get to, and I mentioned this to you in the pre-show, that we get to live this through your eyes and through your experience. And that's fascinating. And we, and it's, it's such an honor to have you here and talk about this because, of course, I've never been there. And for you guys to get the opportunity to go in and see it like that. Uh, that's mind blowing, and thank you for sharing that. Uh, this is this is exactly what uh, what I wanted to do today was to talk about these types of things because it's 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 truly truly fascinating. Um, and, and you know, talking about the whole lead up and the build up of Venice and making it a power again, I had no idea about bringing the bones over. You know, the 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 body. You know how that would that played such an important part. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, what, what's funny about what, when, when you're doing these shows, um, because I've been to Venice years and years ago as a, a tourist, and it's fantastic, you know, but uh, we, we had another another advantage in a way when we were there because of the COVID situation. Oh, right. St. Mark's Square was empty. <clears throat> and you can never film St. Mark's Square empty, maybe at night at three in the morning, you know, but... So that was that was really fortunate. But then when you're coming over doing a show, um, we have what we each destination they appoint what they call a fixer. That's somebody that's very somebody very well connected in the area to, you know, arrange access to these places like the Hagia Sophia and the Doge's Palace. Um, so you know, to go there knowing that you're going to get these unique opportunities to experience is an absolute privilege 
the photography is incredible. Yeah. Seeing you two standing in any of these remarkable yeah. spiritual places is a lift for those of us who watch through our our the portal of our our television. Mm -hmm. And it is incredible <clears throat> watching watching the camera sweep upward, and you can see on your face a memorable experience, possibly a life changing experience as well. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's great. I mean, we, we went to places that you would never normally go as a tourist, really, because it would be too much effort or you wouldn't want to go somewhere for a fortnight's holiday. Mm -hmm. But to go for three or four days, it's great because you get the outline of most of it. I mean, I'd never been to Venice before, so I had no idea. I mean, other than you see it on the TV. But, you know, you, you get out of the aeroplane and um, within five minutes, you get on a boat. Oh, it's, just, it's just fantastic. And we arrived. It was just getting to sunset time, wasn't it, when we got there? Yeah. And yeah. we had this 20-minute boat ride, and they gave us a little tour around the, the city before we went to the hotel. And again, there were no other boats around there, nothing. I mean, it was just Venice. It, there was only the pair of us there. It, was a, it's a, it is a remarkable place to be. I mean, it's actually great actually when it's full of tourists as well because there's such a buzz there you know it's, it's it's probably one of the best destinations in the world for anybody to go and i'd see. love to see it i would love to see it and now even more so because of what you guys have brought to light there i had no idea any of this stuff i mean mm -hmm. it's not something that you learn i mean gretchen i'm sure you know all about this stuff you know because you research these things but i i had no idea there's always room for more information and there's always something new to learn. I don't believe anybody knows everything, <laughs> but uh, unless it's Hamilton, of course, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> cough. bless you. Um, Tell you what was amazing. A, a little fact about Venice in St. Mark's where you've got, the Doge's Palace, which is next to the cathedral. And then there's a canal that runs off the Grand Canal in between the palace and the prison. <clears throat> and there's a bridge that runs from the palace to the prison. And you think, well, why, why would a bridge prison? And that's because it's, it's one of two places with, um, with a high court actually inside of the palace. And we've got one in London in the mayor's um the mayor's home actually still has the court in it but the the, the doge's palace had a court in it and if, if you got tried for anything and you were sentenced you had to cross the bridge and it was known as the bridge it is known as the bridge of size because the prisoners got one last look out the window mm. of beautiful venice and they all used to sigh and it, it was very sad but a you know a, quite a a powerful message in you know i don't know it just makes you think and look back and think but well, it must be a shocking thing for people like that especially if somebody's being imprisoned and they're innocent yeah i mean what well, i think one of the good things i i don't think it's actually made it on screen but we went to a place that was doing glass and glass manufacturing on one of the little islands because that all stems from the Crusades as well, that the um, the Venetians actually bought back 
a whole load of craftsmen from the Holy Land and from the sort of Byzantine area who were skilled in glass manufacture. And the whole Venetian glass industry stems from that time. And they had an exclusive on the t whatever it was, the specific type of sand that was used to make fine quality glass that you could only get in, I think it was somewhere like, was it Lebanon or somewhere like that part of the world at the time, was it? I can't remember. Yeah. I mean, they created a monopoly for themselves in the Holy Land, which is Sorry. why Italian glass for centuries was considered the finest glass. All ties up to yeah, the whole era. That mural in the three arches above the cathedral is a mosaic, so mm -hmm. tiny little squares of glass. And yeah, they, they, they actually, I think they brought some of the artisans back from Constantinople under duress because Constantinople was the epicenter for more, uh, mosaic artwork. And if you go all, all around Venice, there's loads of mosaic work. Um, so they, you know, they brought that back. So they, the commercial side of it again, you see, when they're bringing back, it's not just gold and silver they're bringing back and jewellery, they're bringing back trades and mm -hmm. skills that, that they, they then exported across Europe. And you'll go, and, you know, they had the ability then via the Vatican to go to churches all and cathedrals all across Europe and palaces and, and use their unique trade. And as you know, in those days, trade guilds were very um, prestigious secret societies. You, yep. you couldn't just become one, you had to be invited. So the effect right. was profound. I mean, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a byproduct of war. I'm not saying war is a good thing, but if it wasn't for that, that war or that invasion, those technologies, they would have got to us eventually, but who knows how history would have changed. Yes. We have a question here from one of the, uh, the viewers right now. This is uh, Jan, and she's asking, uh, when you were going around and you were visiting these different places, do the people where you were going, do they know of you? Do they know your reputation as treasure hunters, collectors, and researchers? And were they eager to show you things that not all public would see, that the public normally wouldn't see? I, I think we get, we get, I mean, we, we get, we did get recognized quite a bit from the first series. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> But what, what, what really happens on our <coughs> Facebook uh, fan page, if you want to call it, we, we get a lot of people, you know, um, it's, it's become a good forum for people to, to discuss areas that some people haven't heard of, some have. Um, there's, there's a lot of people with a lot of theories that we, we you know, we, we just don't get the time to follow them all up because the lifelong vacations and... I'm sure there might be merit in some, and some of them will be, be a complete waste of time, but you'll never know unless you do them. Exactly. I, yeah. I think one of the, the, the gifts, if you certainly call it that, was being the only two individuals, aside from the film crew, of course, inside uh, the Hagia Sophia, and I might be mispronouncing that, the Hagia Sophia, that is a once-in-a-lifetime lifetimes experience oh, so yeah. that is certainly something that that an experience that might answer the question that mm -hmm. that jan had perhaps right. have the doors open and be the only ones in a place yeah. that is normally heaving with with people yeah, that's quite something that's a mark of esteem right there mm -hmm. 
you definitely get a different perspective of an environment when you are alone in it because you can appreciate the scale, the vastness a lot more. Or indeed, if it's a smaller place, you can you can draw the intimacy in much more deeply than you know. I mean, you go in the um, tiny crypt in in the uh, Santiago Cathedral mm-hmm. in Spain, and that's a tiny little space you walk through, and you can't stay long because if you if you if you're there in season as a tourist, there's a queue behind you, like the uh, Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. You know, you get seconds to to look. When we do it, we get to spend a bit longer. That was very moving. Um, I thought that was very moving. Having lighting candles in sacred spaces is is very uh, special, filled with with meaning and gravitas, and and uh, uh, is a way of bringing people you love with you, and also uh, wishing them well. So thank you for sharing those moments with us, Carl, when you were inside sacred spaces mm-hmm. at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre and also at St. Mark's. But that also went a, a slightly different route as well. You know, you, you are both pilgrims, even though you're there filming and researching, but you were, you're both pilgrims. And Carl, you have a certificate, don't you? Uh yeah. A certificate from your your pilgrimage trail yeah that's it it's the uh, oh wow <laughs> thank you thank oh, you so wow. much that's for awesome. sharing that with us and that's the jerusalem cross um and then uh, it happened in um in jerusalem in the oldest tattoo parlor in the world i think the, really? the, the first generation found it founded it in the 13th century and the guy we met who runs it today, a guy named Wazim Razouk, they, they're family of Coptic um, Orthodox uh, Egyptians, Christians. And they've been there, they've tattooed Haile Selassie, they've tattooed pilgrims in, in the 13th century, they've ta- wow. probably tattooed crusaders. Um, and that, that alone was, you know, a fantastic thing. But if he, even the block where they transferred the pattern on is Hollywood. And, and the block was about 400 years old, carved by one of his great-great-grandfathers. Wow. And he inked the block up and then he, he rolled the block on the wall. And then he, he obviously used a modern uh, tattoo machine. Now, in them days, they had a tapping one where they charged it in the ink. I, I, I had no intention of getting a tattoo when I was there. I thought, well, we'll do, the, do the inking up, you know, because that's fine. But I, I've never, I've, I've got this far without a tattoo. But I felt a bit guilty because my dad had tattoos. He was a, a merchant seaman. And he had, he had a... There you go. I'm a sailor. Yeah, I'm a former uh, Navy uh, man. And so that's usually something you do when you're drunk and you're in a port city someplace. <laughs> well, he, yeah, he's got, a, he's got an eagle on one side and a black panther scratching his arms. And on his two wrists there, mm-hmm. he's got two, two beautiful Chinese ladies or Singapore ladies. <laughs> yeah. They've not done very well, I have to say. Um, and it's just, I don't think my mum was happy when she found oh. out. So it was always dropped into us, you're not getting a tattoo, you know. And I got there and I just thought, you know what, 
I'm, I'm here, I'm in the holiest city on the planet. Uh, I'm, with, I'm in the oldest tattoo shop in the world. I'm actually in front of the family, the 27th generational member. And, awesome. my dad, and my dad had a tattoo, so I'm getting one. And that's, yeah, there you when, go. I, when I'd done it, I was sort of having a good chat with him. I said, I said, it's funny, isn't it? You get people come to Jerusalem and they, they go to the Holy Sepulchre and they have to come to you for a tattoo. He said, oh, yeah. He said, he said you'll find thousands of them all over the world. I said, so it's kind of like a certificate of pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. said, you know what? I like that. I'm going to use that now. So he, even Wazoom calls it a certificate of pilgrimage. But it is in a way. It's just a, mm -hmm. a nice mark. I'm still waiting to bump into someone, one of his old clients, to see if we can do the snap thing you know and oh, maybe someone will write in on the fan page with <laughs> their go. own yeah. photograph yeah. Nice. that yeah. would be something that would be terrific i go over there i'm gonna get one you are if i get you there i'm get gonna it. i don't know what it costs you but if <laughs> no it's, well it didn't cost us anything you wouldn't take any money hamilton and he was a biker you had to go on his harley davidson around jerusalem as well there you yeah go. We had that, was, that was cool yeah yeah i mean the day the, the plan was when we got there, they were going to bring... He's, he's actually part of a bike bike chapter called The Holy Bikers of Jerusalem. So when we got there, I expected to get uh, a Harley for me to ride or a bike because I'm a biker. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, he couldn't get a spare bike, so I had to sit on the back of his bike, which was quite pleasant. I, you know, I'd, I, got, I got a blast around old Jerusalem on a Harley <laughs> Davidson, I thought that was pretty cool. You know, it doesn't get much better. Yeah, what kind of story is that? Oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean, Jerusalem is a fabulous place. I mean, you don't have to be religious to enjoy Jerusalem. Just yeah. the actual, the whole historic aspect of it, of thousands of years, all layer upon layer, and you, you know, because it's different layers. You're walking somewhere that's Roman. Then you suddenly pop down a hill and you're into the old city of David, which is 2,000 years older. Then you're up in the Crusader layer. And it's all within a few hundred yards of each other walking around. It's just fantastic. It really is. Loved it. I read the other day an amazing little story. There's a, a guy there. He's a, he's a Muslim guy. And he's, it's, a, it's another one of these people that's, in a family generational business. And he, they had, they've got a tiny, or they had a tiny cafe in the middle of old Jerusalem. And he decided to do a bit of digging around. And he, he's got seven, seven uh, vaulted crypts now and tunnels. So he's, he's managed in part to expand his, his restaurant in part of them. Um, and some of them he hasn't been able to use now because the, the uh, authorities want to buy a shop off him for a premium. Wow. Obviously, because they think uh, that one of the tunnels goes all the way from his cafe uh, to the uh, Alaska Mosque. Oh, Which is, I mean, that is, you can see the power in that and what, what you know, the possibilities of what, what could be seen there. So, you know, it, it is, it's, you know, it's a, it's a place exploding with history. It's it's split into four quarters. You've got the Jewish quarter, the Christian Vatican quarter. You've got the Armenian quarter and the Islamic quarter. You know, so 
and they all managed to coexist with no problems, generally. Generally, yeah. Wow. But it, I mean, it, it sounds like, oh, there's four quarters. It sounds like nothing, but when you actually walk around the old town, you step over the demarcation line of, right, you're leaving the Armenian and going into the Arabic quarter, and it's absolutely 100% different, wasn't it? You no. take two or three steps, and you could be in another country. It's very odd. Wow. I'll tell you what it did wow. like when we was there. We was walking through, it was really hot, and we was walking through these tiny little <coughs> streets, and you got these little stalls, and they press fresh yes. pomegranate yes. juice. It was amazing. It was so intense. And uh, the guy said, oh, it will lift you right up this. And it really does. You know, it's like it quenches your thirst, but obviously all the nutrients in it. Nutrients in it really give you a lift. There's just great little things like that there. The, the place where we stopped for lunch, just brilliant. You know, it, and you're sitting in the same place that people would have sat 1,500 years ago. Yes, I know. That's the thing, yep. That that fascinates me. It really does. Go ahead, Gretchen. Oh, uh, <laughs> I was I was my my imagination was firing <laughs> off, and, and uh, I I well, just as an aside, not an embellishment, really, but the last stand in Accra, Echo, the Venetian Quarter is right next to the Templar Fortress mm. there, which is amazing, and and states by proximity just how important the city-state of venice was to the templars yeah and there had to have been so much crossover between the templars and and uh the usage of venetian vessels uh, either renting purchasing or um alliance there had to have been quite powerful beyond what mm -hmm. the was, average person yeah there was a synergy between the two of them, you couldn't do crusades without having logistical supply support. Um, and, you know, the Venetians are obviously ship, master ship builders, and they were perfectly placed to facilitate and place, you know, take that, take that role. But then it was a quid pro quo situation because then they, they had security from the Templars probably with supply chains and customs areas to get goods out and, that's how the world works. It's no exactly. different. And that's a good lead-in to uh, one of the statues in Season 2. Your, you have your shorter pilgrim with his staff, but then you've got the martial figure. And that was intriguing, the, the individual with the spear. Yep. And gives a different way of looking at knights or infantry military going <laughs> into places that were held by hostile leaders, you know, uh, Islamic Muslim areas. So the the potential for espionage there, I think, is is quite quite interesting. Yeah, I brought it's up a an, couple of pictures. It's of an those. unusual piece that you mm -hmm. have there. That that one's the pilgrim with a staff, isn't it? by the looks of it, I think. Uh, yes, the the other one has the spear i believe on the other shoulder he's carrying yeah, this i can bring that one up yeah, the spear on the other shoulder but quite a bit bigger mm -hmm. yes he is and and it just gives you an a feeling and an idea of the need for the templars to protect the roads 
and also for them to that's protect the themselves. There it is. Yeah, I mean, that's probably a pretty accurate description of what an infantryman or a foot soldier would have been like at the time of the, the sort of Crusades. The spear as a staff weapon was the easiest thing to mass produce. And I mean, that's what the vast, vast array of the sort of lesser standing members of the army had as the basic weapon. And I mean, that's, it's more than likely from one of the churches or some structure on one of the pilgrim routes across Iberia. Now, it could have been northern Spain. It could have been northern Portugal. You know, so so many of the pilgrim routes crisscross each other, either going to Santiago or somewhere else. What we found fascinating about <laughs> uh, covering, like on the second series, was different from the first, because we covered, um, you know, a variety of different subjects. But when you look at them, you look at if, you, if you're looking at the Celts, um, or you're looking at the Templars, they all coexisted in, in the same environment, sometimes at the same time, and sometimes at different times, but they all used the same routes. I mean, the, the Camino de Santiago, the uh, Compostela, is actually in alignment with the Milky Way, and the pagans and the Celts actually, you know, obviously were really um, interested in the stars and the paths that the stars led to. Uh, and, and they followed the exactly the same route 1,500, 2,000 years before the pilgrims came along. And then the pilgrims come along and they're using the same route. Um, the Romans would have used it. You know, and it, it's all of the places we go to cross the, the history and all of these characters whether they be Templars, Pagans, Celts, Romans, they're all inhabiting and using and occupying lands much the same, well, in the same way, but just with a different purpose. And that, you know, that just pops out all the time. You can see it. When we done that, um, there was like a site we'd, not far from Palmella. Do you remember Hamilton with the, the Celtic, there was a Celtic uh, pagan site and there was also a Roman, a Roman soldier. Oh, up on the hill, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so many of these ancient sites, particularly sort of religious places, they get assimilated. I mean, something that's pagan is then sort of taken over by early Christians. There's particularly we've found over in the Holy Land, mosques and churches have changed hands and changed denominations many times. You know, it's like Chartres Cathedral, which is the most famous one. I mean, if you go downstairs into the cellars, you've still got the original remains of the, pag of the um, pagan well, which is, as like Carl was saying, it's 1,500 years older than the actual Templar building itself. But it's just assimilating the same sites over and over again as a place of veneration. Yeah. I mean, the sites particularly with... Um cathedrals and you know places churches that they, they are most of them across the world are built on ancient sites of you know significance or the, yeah. the cross cross ley lines or there's, yeah. a, there's a special river running or a, you know a spring on it and they're, they're, you know they're there for a purpose there's power in those ancient lines and springs and 
to change the Vatican, making them very conscious of the power, the power of these places, and basically they want to build over them to take ownership and and empower empower the actual new church with the historical powers that are innate and natural within those specific geolocations. Yes, and often at crossroads, uh, crossroads that have been used, as you said, for millennia and repurposed for the incoming powers, but that energy still exists. Mm -hmm. And you went into that with uh, Lynn Picknett as well, who uh, brought in uh, her work on the Black Madonna Montserrat and uh, other other figures. Um, yeah, that was in St Mary's Church in Wilsdon. We done we done two churches in Wilsdon, and both of them had black Madonnas. There, St Mary's Church where I met Lynn was um, a more ancient church, and the one we done afterwards was I think it was an Art Deco nineteen thirties one, but. Again, I mean, she she she's fantastic, Lynn. What she knows, I, you could have, I could have spent weeks and weeks talking to her. I mean, she's light years ahead of of what we know on them. So, you know, the Black Madonna. I'm still confused with it. It's such a a bizarre phenomena, and it, there's thousands of them. You know, we went yeah. to one. You know, we we wanted to go and to see the Black Madonna. In the church in in um, Montsegur, do you remember that Hamilton with the bloodstone was? Yeah, when we were with Richard. Yeah, yeah, I mean it was just a shame we couldn't get into it. And I mean also we had been scheduled to go down to um, Saint Marie de la Mer, which is one of where the whole original Black Madonna concept is supposed to originate. But we just had a bailout of France quickly. We got caught in the whole COVID chaos. Mm. And we lost about seven or eight days filming in France because we just had to get out of the country. So sadly, we missed out on Saint Marie de la Mer, and we're going to go to Aigues Mortes as well. But we just didn't make it there, which was very frustrating. Well, the, the church in what um, was actually built. Um, this half of it is inside, and half is outside. It's a meteor, and you can see the half of the meteor on the outside. And it's made with this stone, this, this part of this stone called the bloodstones. And Richard actually had two of these stones with him. And basically, he put some spit on them and started rubbing them. And he called it a bloodstone. But really, what you're doing, you're grinding down a red pigment and adding water to it. So, you know, everyone goes, oh, it's a, blood, a bloodstone. But, it would, it, you know, it'd be a tear stone if you'd done it with cobalt or something like that you know you can build a narrative around it but it, it was something that he was telling us about it that you know a lot of people held it with great reverence didn't he well it's it's also it's unique to that area of the languedoc that particular stone isn't found anywhere else at all so it's kind of assumed that it all came from one meteorite shower at some point in history and it cross-references because it's one of the stones that Otto Rahn became fascinated by as to is it some sort of elixir or something from the heavens and that kind of crossed over with Rahn and then the Nazis as to what is what is this stone is it something heavenly again no it isn't something heavenly it's a stone but in the mythology of things, we look at things today with 
a thousand years more knowledge than people did in those days. And in those days, it probably was perceived as some magical or godly like thing because they didn't have the scientific knowledge to analyze things like we do today. Right. So the mysteries and how something like that would have captivated people a thousand years ago is totally different to how we see things today. There is a whole mystical edge to Excalibur and pulling the sword from the stone along with the concept that it could have been forged from a meteor as as this other location is and in other words falling from the heavens <laughs> by the uh, heavens above uh, down to earth uh, as above so below and the blacksmiths held their secrets very tightly because it had commercial value uh, there was a spiritual value, a cachet, and if you were able to make fine weapons that others couldn't afford, it gave you an edge in, edge in battle, but it was a high status object as well. So there's a, there is a whole mysticism wrapped up in rare stones, rare meteors, uh, forging metals, uh, etc. Yes. On the swords, Hamilton educated me on swords because... Um, you know, you tend to think, oh, it's a medieval sword. But at the time, there were proper commercial uh, leading entrepreneurial blacksmiths in Germany and across Europe that were top-class sword makers. And if you was nobility, you, you'd buy the best. And mm-hmm. one knew the kind of who the sword makers were. So it was a, they had a brand then, like... You know, people go, who makes the best cars? Who makes the best kids? Or who makes the best cakes? You know, there's always a, a top name that comes up. And, you know, people pe- people were cognitive um, enough at that time as well to, to just say, well, I'm going to get my sword from this company in Germany. And, you know, I think it was you saying the Viking swords, Hamilton, was, some of them were made. Well, it's a subject of debate, really, because... You know, it wasn't one single person making a sword. You had the blade makers. And I mean, when people started using Damascus steels, I mean, that was invented in the Middle East or possibly even India. Nobody's actually sure of it. So where were the trade links that were bringing that kind of exotic metal into Europe 1,200 years ago? You know, it's a complete new new avenue of things to look at because certainly the Western world didn't invent the best quality steels. They came from the East. And then really right through the sort of whole Middle Age period, you, like everything, like Carl's saying, cars or anything, if, if you were a regular soldier, you would be given whatever sword you were issued right. with because somebody had gone and ordered a hundred of them from the local weapons maker. Mm-hmm. If you were a nobility or you had money to spend, in the same way as today, you might order a golf club or a tennis racket that suits your height, your size, how big your hands are. You would do exactly the same with a weapon and it would be made like a bespoke suit, suit exactly what you wanted to do. And there's a heck of a difference. And until you handle them, you don't realize a sword designed to be used on horse as opposed to a sword designed to be used on foot. Right. The balance and the weight is totally, totally different. Completely different thing altogether. 
Yep. Speaking of swords, I wanted to ask about the one that was in the first episode of season two. It had that OS. What I, I don't think I ever caught exactly what that the S with the O around it. What was that? Did the Osanti sword. Yeah, I mean, that's a sword from the first crusade. So dating somewhere around 1100-ish, something like that. Get, you know, get, give or take 20 years. It's very hard to put an exact date on the sword. But the o OS standing for Osanti. Osanti, okay. That, that was a prayer that was written prior to the first crusade which kicked off in 1097 and basically it was a way of having your weapon blessed that prior to going out on the crusade if you were a sort of a substantial knight part of your sort of piety you did a 24-hour kind of praying session before you went off to wherever you were going mm -hmm. and at the end of it your weapon was blessed as in your local priest or whoever it was is kind of sanctifying your weapon as well as yourself and the os if it's marked on a blade is basically the proof you'd have today that right that weapon was a crusader's weapon that went to the holy land and it's come back and I think there's about 20 or so known to exist across the world. But it's the sort of proof that, yes, if your blade is marked in that way, that is a weapon that was used in the First Crusade. And, and probably for 100, 200 years afterwards by whoever you left your sword to. Yeah, so you can, you can clearly say that it was somebody of great importance that had one of those swords. And also the belief that, after the prayer, the sword is actually imbued with power. Mm. It, you know, you're imbued with righteousness. Um, you know, you literally felt at that point, you know, that God was on your side. And I think, I think when they went into battles, they did believe that. And it definitely, it's, it's like a boxer going into a ring. If you've got no confidence, you're going to get beat. If you've got super confidence, you still got to have talent and might. Mm -hmm. but, it's definitely an asset. Yeah, it, it was like subliminal brainwashing. It's trying to convince whoever is holding the weapon, well, you can't lose. You're doing God's work. God is with you. Right. That's it. You're going to win. There's no, no argument about it. Somebody had asked a question about the, uh, and I think it was Jan, but about the, uh, the Black Madonna. Do we know, before we uh, head on to other things here, do we know, I'm going to bring the picture up, do we know what, material that was made of what type of stone do we have any idea on that is was that revealed the monster art or no it isn't no oh that's what? that is that the one in wilsden is it or is that, that's, that's the, the reproduction in, that's the one in the art deco church because i can just make out the uh the, the stained glass to the oh, i think it's the art deco I might have another picture. Well, of they it. they were made of various various. Oh, actually, um, yeah, I think that's the the, the older one, uh, and I think it's it's like ebony. I think I have an. Oh yeah, I do have one more picture of that one that here. Yeah, that's that's ebony. That. Okay, and then there was the one that was, uh, and I that's think they, they had talked about painting it. It was uh, this one here um, that I guess they'd come back later and they painted it or something like that. But um, yeah. That that one there what was retouched re up recently. There's, there's actually a big controversy over it because <clears throat> it's 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 whiter now. It looks whiter. But what yeah. we didn't know is whether 
<clears throat> whether it was dark just through AIDS patination, you know, you get incense burning, time darkens objects. But the previous Madonna that you looked at, which which is um, the black ebony one, right. that, that Madonna and the baby have clearly got African features. The one in short uh, is clearly European features. So, and, and, and lots of the black Madonnas have got European features. Yeah, there's okay. one picture of it, and then there's the after. Yeah. And so, the, the lore is that that she is, uh, well, obviously with European features, but she is black for multiple reasons, hidden knowledge, and potentially, it, well, this is all wrapped up in the cult of Mary Magdalene as well, as the theories go that she may have been the bride of Christ, and this is mm. maybe very controversial to some people, but uh, when you consider there are 35,000 different Christian sects in the world, mm -hmm. uh, which one is going to be right? It's going to be the one that has the most money, the one that has uh, martial power, but there are other uh, groups that do adhere to Mary Magdalene generating the bloodline of Christ throughout southern France and into the nobility of France, uh, and that those teachings that she came with, the teachings of, of Christ, if you will, an alternate, uh, an alternate church next to the patriarchal church of, of Rome. So she's, she's quite the, the interesting individual, and uh, I appreciate Lynn's uh, research on it. And uh, I was talking to the painting of um, Da Vinci's Last Supper painting with the absolutely apostles, but the the person to the right of Jesus, which was formerly thought of as one of the apostles, when you look at it, it clearly is a lady. It's not. I go into quite a lot of that in my my own first book, and I what it, regardless of what you think about this. Thousands of people did think that this was the case. And even nobility today aligns themselves with that, with her as their ancestor. And if you look at the constellation uh, chart in 1623, 1625 by Julius Schiller, he replaces Cassiopeia with Mary Magdalene and I believe she may have even seen that image the last supper that Leonardo da Vinci created because her facial features are very similar to the Mo Mona Lisa but she takes the place as the queen of heaven revolving around the north star as as Christ and in the new constellation chart of the night sky which has become christianized Mary, the mother, is not there. So he's saying Mary Magdalene is actually the new queen of heaven as the uh, mother of, of Christ's children. So it, it is all quite something. So look that up online, and I do go into that in a, my own book towards the end of the, the first one, uh, Night Templar of the Sangreal. But it is a very compelling image of Mary Magdalene over the empty tomb of Christ with a Mona Lisa smile on her face, holding a scepter of stars in her hands. Which so, brings, you, brings you to a very interesting question of uh, why and how much did um, Leonardo da Vinci actually know about 
the Merovingian dynasty and the esoteric side because he certainly big big overtures and clues in his paintings that you know he was a very educated man and his art school he would have schooled other painters younger painters and he was part of a part of a line a, a transmission of information some people think he might have actually been a grandmaster as well but he certainly was clued into the inner world of human potential of becoming a metahuman which is what mary magdalene's teachings were about and even christ said you can do what i have done if you but have faith in your yeah. capacity so I mean, it was said that mary magdalene arrived with two other marys on an oarless boat or a boat without sails and they arrived in france and some people suspect that she was actually pregnant when she was arrived when she arrived and that her womb was actually the carrier of the grail the bloodline yes he was referred to as a rabbi in sacred texts in order to be a rabbi you had to marry you had to have children or you could not be called a rabbi and he was born out of very out of a very strict jewish culture christianity didn't just come out of the ground fully formed it was born on the back of what was already there yeah so this is the the black hidden church next to the all boys club of of the patriarchal church so this information has persisted down through the millennia for reason there's a line of truth in it and leonardo as an educated man would have had would have been privy to to this information that was passed down and also the templars would have been part of this line of transmission and they would have been part of the transmission in their own dna but it is very highly likely that that they had several children by the time he had his uh, from age 30 to 33 and she may have been traveling with him as his young bride he would have married early they would have uh, traveled potentially together on the trade routes as Joseph of Arimathea's uh, uh, tin part of the tin trade there so there are innumerable potentials um, and out of one child today exponential mathematics you would have 35 million people today who could have been related to that first one single child so that's quite a lot of people yeah um, but yes it is controversial and lynn has done tremendous work on that front and I have found further evidence that in 1623-1625, the Holy Roman Emperor commissioned Julius Schiller to Christianize the star chart, the constellations. And he died shortly thereafter, after this was released. But it is uh, available online, and a few images are available in my first book on the subject. But um, it is... Mere gold and silver is enough to make anyone violent. But when you are holding keys to a kingdom of a rich tradition, 
that is in opposition to the current standing uh, order of the day, which would have been the Catholic Church mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the day, things are going to get violent and nasty. And what I found so poignant at the end of season one for you two gentlemen was the Inquisition in Portugal and that they overstayed their welcome Mm -hmm. and that they did absolutely everything they could to wipe out Templarism in Portugal, which Mm -hmm. was a Templar state that Bernard de Clairvaux had a, a hand in creating and carving out of Spain and the I think what you said during season one that forty thousand people were murdered at that time. It was just horrendous, and that was the reason why the Templar horde was buried to keep more these objects. Yeah, more than likely. I mean, it wasn't just wiping out Templarism; it was wiping out anything that didn't conform absolutely exactly to what the Catholic Church said you had to believe. Mm. Hence you know, the the Jewish population that had already fled from Spain into Portugal 20 years earlier, they had the same persecution simply because they wouldn't adhere to the Catholic religion. You know, there was, there wasn't another option. You either did exactly what the Catholic Church said or you're a heretic. There wasn't a middle ground and it was just religious zealotry. And in a lot of countries, it went on for several hundred years. It wasn't just um, a quick fix. But uh, no, I mean, there, we we didn't get chance to cover it. But there's also a fascinating Black Madonna in Portugal that dates back to the Templar period. That's in a very tiny ancient church right on the west coast of Portugal. That I believe it's a stone carving, I think, but it's in a place that was venerated by the Templars, and it's a very, very clear representation of something that's definitely black. And I mean, there's a going back to the Middle Ages, the whole Black Madonna thing, it wasn't rare. I think there was something like between five and six hundred different representations in carvings of black Madonnas in the Middle Ages. So, I mean, it was a not common as such, but it wasn't a completely underground thing. And it was right across Europe. It wasn't just in an isolated pocket. It was something that had spread throughout throughout the whole Western world, really. Well, it, yeah. can't, it can't be heresy either because... You know, the Vatican churches to this day still allowing them to be placed in positions of prominence. Yeah. So clearly the the papacy um, sanctioned that. But there's never I don't I don't think they've they have ever come out with anything to say precisely what what the reasons are for it. I I just don't know. I find it really confusing. Well, she could have been a woman, the first child could have, if you want to go that route, the first child could have been a woman of color. And that is a clue in itself. And one of the women with Mary Magdalene landing in Marseille on on the shoreline without oars uh, was a woman named Sarah. Sarah in Hebrew means princess, literally. So... It is very highly likely uh, that that we're talking about a Davidic political kingship, let alone different 
ideas on prayer, how to visualize prayer, etc. The nature of God. It, it's, uh, uh, but but of course, you know, Christ being being born in the Middle East would have had dark hair, brown eyes. Exactly. He wouldn't have looked uh, like an American. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yes. No. Exactly. <clears throat> Which we see those pictures now. He looks like a, a hippie from the '60s, you know, with the hair and everything. It's like that's He's not bad. what he would have looked like. Sorry, yeah, that's that just doesn't cut it. So darker skin, yes, for sure, absolutely. That's my opinion. Nice, <laughs> absolutely right. Yeah, I did want to jump over to uh, continuing a little bit with season two. Um, you know, very fascinated by the um, the Celtic gold uh, that you have. Um, yeah, these pieces, when I first saw them, I looked at them and I, I see you took it. I'm going to bring one up as a picture here. Uh, this one I think was Astarte. Um, this one here. Yeah, that's an Astarte. Yeah. And, and I was so fascinated. It seemed like they're so fragile. I mean, so thin that you could bend it so easily. I mean, it was, it, tell, tell us a little bit about your collection of these pieces. Oh, God. Well, I started getting into gold not that long ago, I don't know, four or five years ago, just because I'd seen a few pieces. And like everything, it kind of gets a bit over the top. And I don't know how many pieces I've got now, a few hundred, I suppose. <laughs> but um, it, again, it's an interesting cross section of, of religions because, like the Astarte, the first one you brought up. I mean, the Astarte figure itself is Middle Eastern origins. It's kind of going back to Phoenician times, I mean, several thousand years BC. And it's the spread of as people were either trading or moving from the Middle East to the West. They've brought their religions with them. So although they're colonizing the West, for several generations after, they're still following the sort of the traditional religion that their ancestors had brought over with them and then there's now a sort of a middle ground gold where it's like a cross cross fertilization of cultures where you've got pure celtic but then you've got a little area where the celtics and the phoenicians have crossed over and it's not quite either culture yet yeah, I mean, look, when you look at that, the the two figures to the left are pure Celtic. And then moving to the right, the bull's head, yeah, that's more than likely pure Celtic because the sort of the bull culture of Iberia, which is southwest Spain and southern Portugal, that is then a pure sort of Celtic with no influences from the Middle East. That's entirely their own new belief system coming in. And it's just something I started to get interested in, and I probably shouldn't have done because it's a quick way of getting skint. Because every time you got some money, oh, it's gone again, and I've got another piece of gold. Oh no! <laughs> That's just the way these things work. You can't help it. Now you had taken these out to a uh, there was a a stone um, a stone circle and I had I'm at a complete loss for the name. Um, you had met a lady out there and you were going through and looking at the stone circle. I have a picture of the circle, but I can't. Was oh, it? the roll the roll right stones? Roll right stones, yeah. Yeah, but I think it was I think it was these right here, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah, roll right stones. 
So what was the connection between those, the Celtic gold and, and this area here? Um, well, none, because that's really a, a, an earlier site. Oh, but okay. it was just a case of wanting somewhere interesting to film. Ah, okay. <laughs> it's kind of, I, I mean, the stone circles you have in England and across Europe generally tend to be a lot older than the Celtic period. You, you're talking almost Neolithic or older than that. Um, but it, it's the continuation, like we were saying before, of sacred sites over and over being reused that mm -hmm. sort of neolithic -y things were probably then used by the druids for whatever druidic ceremonies came along in the same way that stonehenge today is still a, a sort of a very sacred place for modern druids and modern believers of the sort of celtic or natural pagan belief systems you need to suck a zoom or something there mate I've, got, I've, I've been munching them for the last half an hour. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, shot of whiskey or two. I'm on, I'm on more time. I'm certain I'm more time. <laughs> yeah, no, we we done that. We done that scene with um, Suzanne Leyburn, and it, you know, it's it, it, again for us. It's brilliant to go to these places and see them. It's just an, another fantastic piece of history that you're actually standing in the middle of and one of those stones on that circle has got an engineered hole bored out of it and it looks like it's in the direction of another monument which is about 500 yards from if you look at that circle if you said it was 10, 10 o'clock and draw an arrow right out well 500 yards through that hole you can cite uh, this other prolific monument that's made out of stone, almost a compendium of monoliths. Right. And you, you wonder what they were doing with these stones. You know, there's, they, they, they used the stars, they used lights, they used markers and pointers to do all sorts of things that we'll never know. But, um, you know, it's, 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 it's good fun trying to work it out. Yeah, I have to laugh too because when on the show Hamilton goes out there, you know, you you're, you're bringing some of this Celtic gold with you, and uh, you're you're presenting them, and you're you're getting ready. You're at this spot right here, and the cameras on you guys and everything, and and Hamilton takes these these priceless Celtic gold pieces, and he opens up a cigar box that you're in the middle of cigar box. And I'm like, these are priceless. And and it's so Hamilton though, honestly. You know, I've gotten to know you a little bit. I said that's so Hamilton to carry these priceless pieces around in an old cigar box. <laughs> well, they would have been in a cigarette packet, but they didn't want the branding shown on TV. <laughs> right. so we're, we're very laid back in the way we deal with this sort of stuff. Well, you know, and I love that part of it. I really do. I think that's it's the very awesome matter part. of fact. I mean, we're surrounded by it all the time, mm. and you, it's just it's just normal. You know, this stuff I've handled my entire life. Mm -hmm. There's a great misnomer that all the academics and museum people like to put out of what you can and can't do, and how you handle yeah. things, and you can't do this, that, the white gloves, and that. It's a complete load. Cobblers. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. You know, it's, these things are going to last thousands of years after we're all gone. Yep. It makes no difference whether you put it in a cigar box or a 
steel line briefcase it just doesn't matter it's right. cobblers the stuff's meant to be handled that's what it was made for all those years ago swords and weapons weren't made for things to be looked at and stuffed in a glass cabinet they were made to be used and handled they were functional things right. and my view of it is they still are i mean no we don't go around attacking each other with them but to get people handle them and go outside and wave them around and you know you suddenly get the feeling of oh god yeah when they said a horseman's sword is different, now I know why, because I stood in a field and waved it around. Mm -hmm. And that applies with so many things, physical yeah. objects through history. You know, looking at something in a cabinet or looking at a picture of it on Google, you have no concept of what you're no. dealing with, nothing whatsoever. No. You're learning so much more by actually yeah. playing with them. And we are playing with them because... A, we know how privileged we are to be able to do that. Um, but B, when you pick a, a sword up, you do want to swing it round and feel mm -hmm. the way. And it's just, it's, it's, it's almost a, a natural reaction the second you pick one up. You don't pick one up and start looking at the, you, you do look at the blade, but the first thing, it wants you to, it wants you to create movements and, Mm, totally. Uh, you just do it automatically as 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 the original use was intended for. And right. then by doing that, then that poses other questions. And going back to what Hamilton said earlier about the nature of swords, if you was a lay uh, swords person, you just got an off-the-shelf sword. If you had power and means, you could have a bespoke one that was finely balanced and measured specifically for you and it would have been like today they do with purdy shotguns you can go to um i think it's in uh, uh what's the name of the street in london in mayfair where the purdy shop is you know you, do you know that shop where that antique place is they make the shotguns what is you mean like where purdy and holland and holland are yeah yeah what's it oh. called forget the name it's a well-known street but you get you go in there if you if you're an earl or a you know very powerful person with big means, you go to Purdy when you probably when you're 15 or 18, and you, your dad will get you pay your money to measure up for two matching shotguns, and they make the stock to exactly to you. They, you know they balance the metals, and when you go back in a few months, that you've got a pair of shotguns not just for your life, but to pass down, mm. um, you know, to your heirs. And those items, I think when the Templars were getting swords made, I don't think they were thinking of passing them down. They, right. were, they were just thinking of making the most functional and efficient weapon. And if you could have it tailor-made and it's more comfortable and balanced for you to use, then it's going to be far more effective. Yep, exactly right. And that's the thing that you also mentioned by handling, you know, we saw in season one and then again in season two, where you're taking out like things like the chalice, the white chalice, and you're holding it in your hands. And I kept thinking, oh my gosh, if somebody drops that on the floor and it breaks or something, but yet you had mentioned, I think it was Carl, I think you had mentioned about holding one of these things and you can actually, you can actually feel something from it. It gives you a, 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 a sense of of its purpose or or something explain that a little bit if you don't mind well there's there's quite a few chalices in the collection mm -hmm. yep 
some of them have much more powerful energy <laughs> than others. One we one we've not never shown on on the show is um, there's a smaller individual black obsidian chalice, mm -hmm. and it looks virtually identical to the big one, okay. but it's it's kind of I don't know about that big. It's oh, like wow. a little wine glass, you know, and that one is just. Very pokey, isn't it? That one out of all of incredible. them, incredible. But really... I think you know, not which time. Go on, Andrew. oh, sorry. No, I mean, out of the whole group, for some reason, everybody that handles that one specific obsidian one gets the most out of it. It's hard to describe what it is, but there's definitely a I don't know, a buzz or a, a something that that kicks out that the rest of them don't. It's hard to explain till you've handled it, but there you, is a... You, you've got that aspect to it, but there's the other thing that you've got to consider that must have an effect on that is is the, the sculpting of the item, the ergonomics of it, the size of it, the size of it in relationship to a human and the way you hold it. And it might might even be that the way you hold these things, you you're almost doing prayer if you hold it with two hands. Oh, yeah, very true. Yeah. Beautifully, uh, it's an orb orb kind of shape, so you're sort of holding very comfortably this orb shaped marble, not marble, obsidian material, and you combine the material, the size, the shape. And you know, talk about the esoteric aspects, it all comes together and it's so easy, it all seems to fit perfectly together. And you know, what this might be the reason why, say, for example, the small black obsidian chalices has got more energy coming in because it pulls all of them elements together. Now, whether that was a trial and error thing or whether there's a mathematical um formula for divining and de sorry not divining but designing that shape at that size we don't know but it, but what we do know is that that specific one is very powerful I, and and all of the others have got something to a degree uh, and i would also imagine that because we've talked about we've never actually drank from one of them yet yeah. but we will do <laughs> and the yeah. other thing, the other thing is um we've we thought what 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 would be the fantastic possibilities if we took some of these items to some of the famous Templar sites that we know and have been to what what would be oh, interesting like then yeah. Um, yeah. you know if you could take them to the Shirola and stand in the middle of the Shirola with the libation cup. Or the sword, I'm sure you're going to feel something even more powerful. Yes, um, the carving, Hamilton, that you have of the two priests kneeling with the, the chalice between them mm. is amazing. And you've got such an incredible chalice collection. And I don't think I sh shared this image with Jeff, but uh, Carl, you were just in Cornwall last week and standing next to a uh wall uh with a chalice oh yeah that was, carving uh, in the wall that uh well, it's it, it, it's once again showing uh something that's that's at odds with the the church you know bearing in mind that the temples were ordained by the pope um you would imagine that all 
all of the methods of correlated uh, according to the prescribed methods of, of the Vatican. But we've got, Hamilton's got um, uh, polychrome carvings of two monks sitting kneeling either side of a chalice and the chalice has got an orb above it. Well, I was, I was in Cornwall last week and there was a place I wanted to go and check out and for obvious reasons it's a little town not even a town it's a small hamlet called temple um so i drove up there and there's a, a fabulous fantastic small church or chapel there called saint catherine's and the chapel was it's well known it was built originally in the 12th century by the knights templar there was a community of them there that used to help and assist pilgrims to get, to get on boats on the main port on the south coast um but what happened it went into disrepair over the years and i think it was in the mid 1800s they restored the church so they've restored the church and and they've used a lot of the original stones in constructing it um but it, what's interesting is there's a small building outside a storage building uh, it's almost most the size of a garden shed, but it's made of stone with a slate roof. It's probably it's probably about ten foot long by six foot wide, and the eight with the apex that's probably probably ten, maybe eight, eight foot. And on the apex, on the top where you'd normally see a finial, uh, where the roof line comes to the edge of the gable end. There's a there's, there's a, a, a cross passe on a circular piece of stone, but then when you look at the stone, it's exactly like one of the ones we've got in the collection, which is a, a Knights Templar gravestone marker. So what they've done with this building, they've, they've um, used it. <laughs> I suspect it was built when they restored the church in the 1800s because on the front of it, they've got a, 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 almost like a... a it's built up in sections of stone and it's placed in between various pieces of carvings of Knights Templar uh, uh, stone masonry work, which are nothing to do with the church that's there now because it's, you know, it's, the, the church was restored, but I suspect these parts were originally part of the church. And one of the big pieces, it must be about 20 inches high, is, is literally a chalice shape. Oh wow! Carved out, and there's there's a number there's a there's also a, a, a tiny altar within the stonework, like some of the worship altars we've got, with a little hole for putting water or wine or whatever it is there. And there's a composition of about fifteen stones on that panel and on the side. That are, are some of the symbolisms you can't you can't really decode them because the stones degraded. You can't really tell. What some of the are, but the chalice is very, very crisp and obvious, and um, there's some cross marks and symbols. It's a, an amazing place. In the tower on the chapel on the north north side window, there's a beautiful stained glass window, and in the centre of this lancet kind of design, there's um, a small, beautifully hand painted stained glass panel with a solo knight templar on it on a horse um, 
on the other side is Catherine the Great. So it's funny how all these places link in because she was the she was the ruler and queen of Constantinople. So you you know you look at what we were talking about before with the Crusades uh -huh. going there. Everything ties up. Yeah, for sure. And I think this was uh, was this a picture of the one you were talking about right here? Is that the? Yeah, that's yeah. one of them. That there's there's like a font like that built into the actually placed into composition with the stonework, but it doesn't show the the two monks or oh, indeed the chalice or the orb. But you know, I mean that that is a, that that particular piece is fantastic because it's still got traces. You very rarely see. Uh, medieval stone carving with polychrome that's actually left on them and at wow. one point in, in, in the period a lot of these churches were they weren't just plain stone they were all painted in bright colours mm -hmm. um, right. which is polychrome they paint a white base on and then they put glazes over it to create this luminous uh, look that's, there you can see the red pigments there on the monks and the, the yellow or the guild on the chalice and then above the orb is in a chalky white color and in front of it is like that's kind of like a almost a, a font kind of um you know altar area mm -hmm. wow yeah i mean that that stone is one of a group of five stones that all came from um a, an underground some sort of crypt or underground templar structure at evora and oh, really? all all five stones are still um pretty much covered in the original polychrome which is really unusual and the other stones in the group i think there's two others which depict chalices on them uh, sort of with a templar cross either side of the chalice but very specifically Templar. I mean, it's not something you can confuse with a regular church or anything else. It's mm. it's specifically Templar branded, you know. So what it actually means, we don't know. I mean, nobody's been able to quite fathom out what the worship of the chalice is referring to. Right. And I don't know if anybody ever will work it out. I mean, there's hundreds of people having ideas, but right. they're very clearly two monks worshipping a chalice, and it was found on a known Templar site. So you can't argue with the fact that there is a connection somewhere with Templars and worship of a chalice or a grail or whatever you want to call it. Well, you can look at that that particular piece there. You've got two two monks, so we know they're, they're people who, who worship. Um, mm. There is a clear chalice in the middle. They're, mm. Yeah, they're for sure. venerating it. And then above, is, there's an orb now. You know, there's a big difference between the word, word worship and veneration. Yeah. Um, I think I think the they venerated the chalice as a portal to worship a deity um, because you you, you you know you're worshiping something above, and I think the orb to me kind of represents the deity or the the great oneness. You know, and it's, it's the very new age sort of theories these, but perhaps. Well, it, New Age, because it come from a long line right back in time, and maybe the Templars discovered these these very kinds of things that today were there's more and more people feeling more logically, you know, aligned and uh, affiliated with the right. Tree of Life that was infused into the West, uh, the Kabbalah. 
Uh, and of course, uh, the crucifix is another version of a tree of life. It's just been, it's been Christianized and simplified. But at the very, very top, the ten, you have the 10 centers. But at the very top, that top center, which is the mind of God, is always depicted as being white for purity. And it is the source of all. And it's a bit like a champagne tower where where it comes out the top and filters down the pathways to each center, and it solidifies finally down into the 10th center, which is the earth plane. But all starts out at the top in the, in the, the white, pure mm. potential of, of the source uh, of the all that is. So it, that, that's certainly what you just said there, Carl, uh, makes sense in that context. Uh, but that's, uh, that, when I saw that image, that's what struck my mind. Mm, yeah, I, I'm sure uh, you and me are not unique in, in, in reading it that way. I think there'll be people listening to us and say, well, it's bloody obvious. You know, it's, it is obvious. We might, we might be wrong, but, you know, sure, given, sure. given what we know, and you can only work with what you know, um, that to me seems logical. Um, if, if you can apply logic to spiritual things, you know, I can look at the – we have to use some, some you know, natural – ability or innate feelings to describe it and you know it's, it's like today you know the, um, the amount of people now that capture proper orbs on digital cameras yeah mm -hmm. never used to, people never used to capture them on analog <coughs> photography there's something unique about digital cameras um, that are able to ca capture these geometrical almost like um, geometrical Jacobean patterned up purple orbs, very complex. Um, and it's, it's the technology's done that, but the actual, that is an orb there, what you're looking at on that ice. You know, we're, we're, we're looking at orbs now more seriously than, mm -hmm. than we ever were before, because prior to that, I think we, we relied on mediums and spiritualists to mm -hmm. give us, to give us an idea of what's happening, you know, people who read auras, uh, chakras, and you, you know, auras and stuff like this. If you if you if you're not privy to that talent, then you can't. You can only you can only imagine it. But you know, there are people that that can see these things. Right. There, yeah, there are um, murals, uh, medieval murals uh, in in Western Europe, specifically on church walls, yeah. where they're showing a uh, the the tree of life covered in mushrooms, mm. and yeah. um, so so we're talking about altered states of awareness. So who knows what they were drinking in their wine, <laughs> yeah. but but perhaps that gave them the capacity to see what a digital camera would see today. You know, yeah. perhaps they were were as you say carl the the term veneration so they're they're experimenting with altered states of awareness uh through through psychedelics mushrooms whatever we we don't know but but as you said but there's an interesting book out there called the holy mushroom and it 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 talks about these murals where where uh in medieval Western churches, uh, and it's clear they're clearly mushrooms. So, so you know, you have your chalice, you have your orb, and um, we saw we saw a yeah, we saw a great market, didn't we, Hamilton, in the cloisters within the yeah. um, Tomar, where they're storing some of their some of their relics, and it's a it's a snake eating a mushroom. So you got two very, very clearly a mushroom, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
And the snake is always uh, be as wise as serpents, representing the flow of energy. That is one way of looking at it. Yes. Mm. Uh, well, Jeff, snake, I don't... The snake, you know, it's a misunderstood symbology that a lot of people just assume a snake is something evil. But right. when you go back in history, particularly to the medieval period, the snake was perceived of something as a sign of wisdom. And you quite often see <laughs> snakes on, on various um, medieval manuscripts. I mean, there's a couple of stones I've got where you've got a snake and a cross together. Mm. And it, it's not an alien thing, actually. It was a symbol of wisdom. Yes. <coughs> it's just today when it's looked at the the meaning is perceived in a different way mm -hmm. yeah, that's very true yeah. what were you going to say gretchen oh i sent you uh carl's yeah. photograph of yeah. of the yeah. of him standing next to the church in in cornwall temple Coombe, perhaps and and uh i sent that no, messenger. No, there it is there he is so there, oh, yeah. Hand, yeah, where you can see me hand, that's yeah. where the chalice is. I'll send some more to you so you can have a proper look. And in the centre, you can see that little hole in the wall. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's like a standalone altar. So, so all these pieces that you can see in the light of stone have been, they, they were not built into this building in the original purpose that they were, or the time they were made. They've been, this building has been built much later probably in the 1800s when they restored the church and they've used this building as an opportunity to preserve store and allow people to actually have a look at these items and see you know make what you want out of them really mm -hmm. that's really neat and where was this again where was this located that's a town a, a hamlet called Tem temple in 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 Cornwall, there is a place called Temple Coombe as well, but this is not Temple Coombe. If you if you just Google uh, Temple in Cornwall and type in St Catherine's Church or Chapel, um, you can find out all about it. There's actually uh, a posted on our uh, Lost Relics fan page um, a link. I've done a photograph of a, a poster in the chapel which describes. Uh, a short narrative of a book <laughs> that you can buy for five pounds, and it's it's brilliant. It gives you all the history of the temples in the area, the church, its its parish, and when it was restored. You know, it's pretty amazing history you can find. Someone's done all the work before we've turned up, and uh, you know, we we turn up and we see slightly different things mm -hmm. than other people. But that's you know, that's the fun of doing it, really. Oh, I think in Portugal we've got behind the scenes a lot more than everybody else has been yeah. able to do. I mean, the, we we found a very, very good um, guy, Zhao, who's been with us on both series, and I knew him before the sort of days of TV. And he's opened a lot of doors. And actually everybody in Portugal has been very encouraging, haven't they? Yeah, brilliant. They really have. Well, I think I mean, yeah, wherever we've been, people have, in the main have been very, very helpful and, you know, they've enjoyed working with us to, you know, try, try and assist us and show us what we, you know, things that we need to find. And, yeah, it's been good fun. Yeah. I mean, what what's behind the scenes in Tomar is far more interesting to me than what's open to the public. 
the sort of big store storage area where there's probably a hundred or so pieces of stonework that were collected in the 19th century. I would love to That's see far that. more interesting than actually looking at the building. Yeah. It really is. I would love to see that. Well, we got about 15 minutes to go before we get to the two hour mark. I know it's been flying by. And before we finish up, I know Gretchen's probably got a few more things to, to go over. And of course, okay. I a couple little quick things, and I, and and Hamilton, I know you're fading quickly. There, we're gonna... no, I'm okay. No, I'm fine. Don't worry about okay. it. All right, good deal. Uh, <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead, Gretchen, if you have something. Else. All right, I have a very deep question here. All right, it's probably going to take a lot of thought. Carl, would you ever let Hamilton drive one of your cars? Um, <laughs> well. I think he he could answer that because he, he doesn't like driving. He'd rather be show. He'd rather show for me off. He loves me driving. And, yeah, and I, I'm I'm the perfect passenger because I can sit in my own little world and look at what's going on around me. I I don't drive any of my own cars, let alone needing to borrow anybody else's. <laughs> I I would much prefer Carl to get rid of those stupid. Ferraris, which are uncomfortable, and go and buy a nice new Rolls or a limo or something where I can just sit in the back with a load of leg room. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Ferrari, how about you? Ferrari, Ferrari, how about you? Was, and I'll drive it. Yeah, right. Okay, we'll be up for that. But I mean, <laughs> the, Ferrari, the Ferrari was fantastic. But I mean, on a couple of times when we were in Spain and France, we had like six, seven, eight hour driving days. And I mean, seven hours in a Ferrari. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Never again. I mean, <laughs> you try and get out of the car and you're folded into the shape of the seat, even when you get out of the car. You couldn't make it up, could you? He's That's whingy. He's whingy. Because he, I know. Oh, what a shame he had to spend seven hours in a Ferrari. Horrible. Oh, for you, mate. Terrible. Terrible, terrible. We we need a nice big limousine. Oh, there you go. With with plenty of leg room in the back where you can stretch out, mm -hmm. and certainly me, if not both of us, can be driven around, and we can just sit in comfort with a cocktail in the back and some crisps, and just be wafted silently to wherever we need to go. That's what yeah. we need. Yeah. There you go. Now, I was oh, going to say I seen one scene where you were actually driving the Ferrari. It was on a dirt road. And uh, a gravel road or whatever, and I'm thinking, Ooh. oh my goodness! And he's not; he's you're cruising, you're cruising right along, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness! Well, I was wondering about that. I actually use the cars, you know, in real life. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a biker and I love cars, and they're there to be used. And you shouldn't just, yeah, it's nice to have them shiny and you know cruise around Monaco and stuff like that. But I want to. I want to. I want to be the one that puts the mileage on them in the places where I want to go. Mm -hmm. So when we done, I think that road that we was going up to. Uh, it was Mont in Spain. Montjardin, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, that was a proper off-roading experience. That was. <laughs> yeah, in was fact, the, the camera crew were a bit worried. They wanted me to stop halfway up the mountain, and I said, "No, we'll keep going." Yeah, we'll and we did it. We, we got to the top, right up to the castle in a Ferrari. It was brilliant. And then we uh, we, we had a, we got out and had to look around the castle. It was fantastic. Yeah, that was good, good way to see castles. Hamilton, who is your yes. tailor? My tailor. Your yes, that spectacular blue and yellow striped oh, jacket yes. you have. Ah, 
That is a, a, a marvel to behold. Uh, it, it was a friend of mine who runs an oil company in Monaco, and he gave it to me, and I've got an invite to go shooting with him and an invite to go out to a decent kebab restaurant with him. On the proviso, I got it on screen in the series. <laughs> That's marvelous. <laughs> I got a picture of it, too. I was going to try to bring Where it up. Oh. Okay. Yes, do. Do, oh, by all means. It's actually, um, what, they're, they're the same as the dealer jackets, though, aren't they, in the stock brokers? Yeah, they're like, yeah, a little bit like that. That's probably what they are. Yeah. Oh, and they wouldn't it. film it from behind because it got a big corporate branding on the back of it. Football <laughs> shirt. Well, isn't that your name? I mean, yeah, it says ESP Energy Monaco. Okay, <laughs> it won't come up. I can't get the picture to come up now. It won't show up. Oh, I, I never mind. It. Yeah, but it's it's Everyone... awesome. Yeah, it's it's blue and the thing, the isn't it? stripes and stuff. Yeah, yeah it's great. Yes, that you'll just have awesome. to watch season two to see it. Yep. I think that was in Barcelona, wasn't it? When we were at the hotel that Himmler stayed at? Is that yeah, right? it, was in, it was in Lisbon. Was it? It was in Lisbon. Oh, the Ritz. Yeah. The Ritz. Um... Remember when we when we filmed in that wine bar? Oh, no, they, they didn't use the thing in Lisbon. They didn't use that. Okay. No, but she might have got off the Facebook group. Oh, were the photos there? I don't even remember. I, I actually, it was a screenshot. I took a screenshot. It was actually very bad, a bit fuzzy. And Hamilton was walking out of his hotel room with his jacket on. And you two went to dinner. Uh, that was Barcelona, yeah. Barcelona, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And I, I believe there was a hotel nearby. Uh, as Well, it was the Hotel Brits frequented by the Nazis, and that was the episode about the silver bullion, which was fascinating. Yeah. Yes. Don't visualize it, just accept it. There you go. There you go. That's awesome. Well, just thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate the sheer amount of content you both bring to the screen and your knowledge and I realized watching season two, you don't have just one incredible collection of uh, museum worthy, frankly, a museum that would kill for one, the Templar collection. You, you've got the Nazi uh, Holocaust collection, the Celtic gold collection. What, what don't you have? And is there a fourth collection that we'll be privy to in the future? Well, I don't quite know what's going to appear on screen next, but yeah, collection number four, if you Google Heritage Museum of the Bahamas, that's my museum in Nassau, which has got all my sort of Caribbean and piracy stuff in. That's been open about three or four years. Oh, I don't know how much stuff is there, thousands of items. Oh, my word, that sounds like great fun. Well, so if you're, we, you're a pirate, um, we, you must go see uh, the collection in the Caribbean. We've, we've, we've thrown the idea in the air. Can we do something Caribbean-y themed? Because I think, yes, it would be interesting, but more than that, we'd like somebody to pay us to go to the Caribbean for a couple of months. That oh, would yeah. Be terrible, <laughs> indeed, it really would. You know. If you need help, I'm sure oh. Jeff and I and... and uh, I'm in. I'm in. You know... Yeah. Yeah, we'll help. We'll help. We'll we'll take a bus. 
But no, I mean, what's happening on screen next? We don't know. I mean, Carl, you can bounce around what we're what we're sort of throwing in the air. We've got, as you said, you know, there's a there's a, a, a number of um, other collections. But I mean, if we just, for example, on the first series, which was was all about the Templars, we we've got enough material to do ten series, ten times five series. On Templar artifacts, so if we want to go down that road, we can do that. We've wow. got so many other different um, things that we've discovered that we haven't brought up yet. Perfect, got it. That's that's Lisbon. There it is. There it is. <laughs> I think that's Lisbon. You know, when we was um, when we went to the train, Lisbon train. It station. is. That's the train station. You're right. Yeah, yeah. that one is. Yeah, Jan. Jan dug that one up. She says you got to put this one up on the screen. So I, okay. I, I, so I threw it's it. Well done, Jan. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome i love that thing you know that's what's so uh so neat in your fedora hat we've asked people say well where does he get his fedora hat that he always wears all the time so i said i i don't know we'll have to ask him about that hamilton maybe yes. maybe that could be your side hustle start selling fedoras and and uh your right. copies of your jacket i think Possibly. i probably one of those hats that, that might work. <laughs> New side hustle for you. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah so we, we, we've got a number of things we're looking at. We haven't got anything concrete planned yet, and we've, we know what we'd like to do. We're not short of content. We've got all the content, and we've got all the backup research to deliver, deliver anything, really, on those lines. We've even got stuff that goes back to Mesopotamia. Um, some some really, really amazing stuff we've got. And they're all scoops as well. Everything we've got is things that have never been seen before. So we're not talking about rehashing Roswell or rehashing, you know, Rosslyn Chapel or, you know, a lot of these stories that you see and they're just... People are just going over the same stuff, but they're not bringing anything fresh. Mm. Yeah, derivative. Uh, but mm. we do want fresh. And I hope that whatever you wish to happen in filmic uh, for the both of you, for TV for the both of you, comes about. Oh, it it would be great if we could continue with the Templar story. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, that's what we really wanted to do as series yeah. two was a follow-on but now knowing how it works to sort of improve on it because i mean there's so much that we've learned now and other locations that are very relevant and i mean the whole templar thing is extremely popular i mean there's several other people jumping on the bandwagon doing templar stuff now and for next year mm -hmm with no substance to it whatsoever. And it would be great if we could actually do what we wanted to do, which is the Templar documentary, but with the actual artifacts and the knowledge we've now got. Right. I mean, that would be the perfect thing that I'd like to do, but whether that happens or we, we just don't know, it's kind of all out of our hands. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Unfortunately, we'd love to see it. And any way yeah. that we can help here on this show, you know, I'm more than happy to, to uh, help no. you guys out with any of that. So I'm serious. I'm dead serious on that because I, we love that. I love the Templar influence and what you guys have uncovered. And it's not only, like you said, a lot of people talk about it. Oh, they talk about the Templar. They talk about it. you actually have 
the, the items and then you've gone down the road of investigating where these items came from and all that, it puts it in a completely different perspective for us all. Yeah. It, it, it just it goes way beyond what everybody else is just talking about. Yeah. Well, it's, that's it. I think with what we've we've now learned, you could actually go more into perhaps the belief systems mm -hmm. or certainly to be more accurate on locations and what was going on specifically exactly. in certain sites and how they were different. Yep. You know, I think you could do something really, really good and very relevant with the bonus that each each show or each location there is relevant physical genuine objects you can put on the table which nobody else is doing yep exactly Tremendous. right yeah. Tremendous. a lot of people who talk about what they're going to find but actually find nothing yeah which is where where we score we've already got it come and look at it we would we love you to have a look at it i would love i tell you that's you know and like I said, the fact that you, you know, the academics say, oh, well, you all these things you have, they need to be in a museum. Oh, that's hogwash. You know, the fact that you can get in there and touch it and the way you do without the little white gloves on and all this kind of stuff. You know, like you said, they are meant to be held. They're meant to be touched. They're meant to be observed and, and, and scrutinized and stuff. Got all these things on the wall behind you that I'm sure. Stuff everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> And Carl, you've got quite a collection of books behind you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I've got, I've got a, a, a warehouse unit up the road, and I've got probably 50 times that amount of books, but I'm in a, a transitional home at the moment, so the other one's built, and then then I'm going to get them away. I mean, I, I, I love books. I, I, can't, I can't get rid of them, and I don't like to you know, lose books once I've owned them, because even if I just pick one, one up that I've read, I don't know, 20 years ago. It's like nice to just go back into the book just to. Yes, I'm the same way. I have about 20 boxes of books in storage at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I just can't part with them. <laughs> I think but there's a lot of people out there exactly the same. You know, they're, they're, they're like the, the memories in print, aren't they? Mm hmm. And I like something that Hamilton had said once. Uh, you may have said it on the show when you were on last time, and it was about the art, the act of collecting. You, you are, you are. It's like it's like the the you know building up to go on a trip somewhere. It's that build up to go on that trip. Once you get there, you have a great time, and then once it's mm. over, what's the next? What's the next excitement? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's that you're never really satisfied. The only thing that's interesting is what's coming next. Yes, exactly. Once you got it and it's on the shelf. It's an anticlimax. It's boring. It's, it's the, de the destination's always greater mm. than the journey's yeah. always greater than yeah. the destination. We 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 head to the destination in great hope and anticipation. But actually, when you get to the destination, you look back and get it was the journey that was was the deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly right. Gretchen, did you have anything else that you wanted to ask before we uh, close? No, I'm, that's an understatement. I, <laughs> I know, um, there's a million questions, but yeah. I know, you know, uh, I'm sure we would all like to to have a seat next to Carl and Hamilton mm -hmm. in the middle of all of these objects and just sit down and talk about them. Um, but uh, it's so terrific to have this time mm -hmm. for the two of you to say what you would like to say mm -hmm. that perhaps didn't make it on screen and to to walk us through and help uh 
places that you've been. So a quick question, Carl, you have a Templar property, Obiterre? Yes. If you could buy another Templar property, where would it be? My ideal place would either be somewhere in England, maybe the Cotswolds, uh, or even better if I could find one in a hot, sunny place like uh, southern France. Um, I'd be mm. still very happy with one in kind of around Normandy because that would be accessible, but I'd still be in Europe. There's, there's mm. quite, believe it or not, there's quite um, frequently um, Templar residences come up for sale in France. They're not as rare as you think, you know. You, there's probably on the market today about three across France. Um, so they, they come up, some of them are visually nothing. Though. You know, there's, there's actually one in, um, remember Richard Stanley's girl was looking at one Hamilton. Oh, in, yes, that little cottage in just outside Rennes-le-Chateau area. Well, you know, you look at it and it's, it's a nothing, it's so austere and, and nothing of art, you know, architectural merit. They've got to have something about them, you know. You want something with a bit of, bit of wow. But a lot of the temple places were quite, quite plain, and and you know where they lived, they were modest, modest places. They weren't supposed to be big, fancy mansions. Right. It's only the ones that were commanderies that had some official capacity, and the temples have a bit more standing, but they're certainly not decorated or appliqued externally with anything that you, in modern terms we'd look up and go oh what a lovely or inspiring place um it's it's the fact that when you when you get in them you see the the space that they've created and the the, the, the layout that's that's yeah. what makes them you know and obviously the history of them yeah absolutely that would be fascinating i i know exactly what you mean i, I would love absolutely love that um and yet, like I said before earlier, you know, you guys have, you know, you go on your these uh, research journeys and you're doing all this research, but you're going to all these wonderful places and seeing these things. And uh, we get to see it through your eyes. But I tell you what, if I ever get over to the UK, which I need to do, um, I can't wait. Gretchen's, Gretchen's already told me that I'm allowed to come over. She will take me around to a few places that she knows of. Come up and see some of the stuff. Oh my gosh! I I I'm fascinated by it. Have to be. Have to go yeah. and see it. Uh, we did have one question from Tom that you met earlier before the uh, before the show started. Tom was asking a question. He said, "I wonder how often they get presented with items of questionable origin, either illegally found or fake or something like that. Does that happen very often? Or can you if even you want to put it? yourself in that environment? Yeah, you could have it happen to you every day of the week." Suppose, if you wanted yeah. to, but you know, it we don't need to. We have we have sufficient real stuff that we don't really need to bother with that kind of person. Go down the local antiquities places in London or any of the capital cities, plenty of stuff to be had if you want to put your nose in that direction. But go on the, yeah, on on the, yeah, go on the National History Museum, it's full of it. <laughs> Correct. You know, that, that's the other thing everybody likes to have a go at private collectors where did you get that you stole it you got yeah, it on the illicit market yeah. as carl says walk into the british museum excuse me 
the entire Egyptian gallery you stole in the 19th century. Yeah. You know, before you start having to go at people like us, you have a good look at your own gear. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Marbles. It's full of it, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it's but it, it is a curious thing, though, that um, our fellow people are the first ones to decry their fellow collectors for owning things that they, they say, oh, they should be in museums or they should be, you know, that are safe in our hands. Yep. As they are in a museum. And if you yes. actually go to a museum and you think, oh, at least the museum's got it. Well, guess what? A museum is literally like an iceberg. The public will only ever see the tip of what's in the vaults. And they will only see the tip forever. There's, there's always going to be people that have this private access mm. to the full body of, of the chattels that these museums have. And, the and it could be sold on too. You know, right. you, you, you could send these things to a museum. It would never see the light of day, and then right. they would sell oh, yeah. it off to buy something else. They do. So, it happens frequently. Yeah. I know um, in the motorbike, classic motorbike world, there's a few. <laughs> Private museums, and I, I won't make names, but I know people who've uh, donated machines, motorcycles to them, and found out subsequently that they've immediately sold them on to yeah. raise money. Well, that wasn't the, the wishes of the benefactor. No. I think that, are... that kind of behavior, mm -hmm. and I find, you know, I think it's disgusting, but it definitely goes on. And there's so many thousands and thousands of private homes out there of people who have even a modicum of finances that have classical objects, vases from ancient Greece or Rome, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just knocking around in private houses. Yeah. And these objects will never be shared with the general public mm -hmm. either. So. A mate of mine used to be... Um, the personal valet for Lord Derby, um, is, you know, that, that Lord Derby, then he's passed away. Um, and there's another newer Lord Derby now. But actually, one of my mates was his valet. Another mate was his chauffeur. And another mate was his chef. And another mate was his butler. So I, I had quite a, you know, a good time because we could go on his estate and, Sometimes we we go back to the to his quarters that where he lived in the in the mansion, and sometimes we get a little tour, and it was just staggering what you'd see. There's paintings by Poussin, uh, <coughs> Renoir, Gainsborough. Um, oh, I mean, you know, you took one painting like a Poussin at the time, I think it was worth ten million quid, and I'm going back forty years ago. Wow. Now they're never going to be seen by the by the public. But, right, right. Uh, but that's that's fine. You know, if they're privately owned, they, they can do what they want with them as long as they that's don't damage them or destroy them. Then, then that's good. It's people are, should be allowed to own things. If you if you go down the route of uh, everything's got to go to the museum, well then it's communism, and that's not you know, that's that's not the world we live in. Right. Well, it, not had good experiences with museum people, unfortunately. Um, not at all. I can only imagine. Yeah, that's for sure. Bit, museum people are a bit like politicians in that they tell you what you can and can't do, then do the exact opposite themselves and pretend it doesn't happen. Yep. Yep. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. for sure. 
Wow. Well, we we certainly appreciate the fact that you are putting this out there. And like I said, if you ever need that outlet to talk about stuff down the road, I would be more than happy to fire up the server and, and allow okay. you to come on here and talk about whatever you want for as long as you want. Because like now, I, I asked you about that earlier today, Jeff, and you banned me from talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a different <laughs> show. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> we can do but that. No, we, yeah. we, we are working on a couple of other things that we haven't talked about anywhere yet. But I mean, as soon as it's sort of out there, it's it, yeah, I don't see why we, we can't do something in the future when with or without TV, you know, there's always something to talk about. Certainly. Oh yeah. 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 Thing. You guys have such fascinating things to talk about. It really yeah. truly is. And I, and like I said earlier, I, you know, you, you're taking us down these roads that most people like myself have never been and had no idea even existed. And that's fascinating. And it really, truly is fascinating. So we get an education every time you guys come on the show. Adventure. Thanks. Yeah. We get to kind of ride along on your adventure, uh, so to speak. <laughs> sorry, sorry about coughing for the last two no, hours. That's right. oh, thank God. you for being here. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Okay. So we're going to wrap it up here. Yeah, I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. And thanks for all, all the listeners to uh, give the, give their time to us to listen to us and uh, being good being on your show. Thanks, yeah. Get better, Hamilton. Sorry, Get better. Yeah, we, oh, everybody, everybody was wishing you getting better. So hopefully uh, that'll be happening soon and uh, you can get uh, back to uh, 100%. So, all right. Well, thank you guys so very much. Gretchen, thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, cheers, thank both you. of Good you. night, Carl. Good night, Hamilton. Good night. Good night. Thank you, to everybody that's been out there with us today watching the show. We appreciate you very much. And all right, that wraps it up for this edition. And uh, we'll see you next time right here on the Curse of Oak Island and Beyond live stream. All right. Bye bye, everybody. Bye bye. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us and listening to this recording of The Lost Relics of the Knights Templar with Carl Cookson and Hamilton White. This show was recorded as a live stream on December 4th, 2021. The video recording of this show can be seen on the YouTube channel JFree906. Thank you and have a great evening.